I love sloppy wet kisses, so I'll sing that Ew. all day, every day. <laughs> so does it, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, before we get started and introduce our guest, Benjamin L. Corey, I want to let everyone know that we have started a brand new Facebook group called Post-Evangelicals. We recently realized that there is nothing like this on Facebook as far as a place where people in a post-evangelical mindset who are rethinking and reshaping their Christian experience to go and talk and have discussions. And although we do that on our Facebook page, it's a little different to have a group available for everyone. This isn't going to be technically an Irenicast Facebook group. It is open to all post-evangelicals, whether they listen to the show or not. And it will not be a mode for us to promote just the show, but it is a place where people can come and talk. So we encourage you to check that out. It is at facebook.com slash groups slash post-evangelicals. We will make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. So check that out. And we'll be talking more about that as the week's go on. So Alan, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today? Benjamin is an author and speaker who has contributed to the likes of Time, Sojourners, Red Letter Christians, Christian Weekly, Mennonite World Review, and The Good Men Project, as well as giving interviews on HuffPost Live, The Drew Marshall Show, Up for Debate, and repeatedly, Tell Me Everything. Benjamin published the book Undiluted, Rediscovering the Radical Message of Jesus in 2014. He hosts the podcast That God Show with Matthew Paul Turner, and he does much, much more Benjamin, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. I happy to be on the show. We are very happy you're here too. <laughs> you Man, you recently pleasure. received uh, you recently received your doctorate from Fuller Theological Seminary. Is that right? I did. I did just a, a week ago, Friday. And um, man, it was a long journey, and I'm super stoked to be done. I uh, have uh, been in seminary longer than I've been a parent, and uh, so I've been in seminary since uh, the end of 2008, and I am super excited to finally be done. As much as I enjoyed it, I'm just thankful to be done. So should we call you Dr. Corey from here on out? Mm, (laughs) No, you don't have to do that. (laughs) Sir Dr. Corey. You you got your degree in uh, intercultural studies. Correct. Yeah, it's a DIS, Doctor of Intercultural Studies. And what I did was um, I developed a theology of personal shalom um, that can be used in um, trauma aftercare. I specifically studied human trafficking aftercare programs throughout the United States. And I kind of looked at uh, phenomenology of what they were doing and how they were measuring success and what the gaps were that were missing. And I felt one of the big gaps that I noticed missing in the field research was really a a well-laid goal, um, which I thought was uh, absent. So I developed a personal theology of Shalom that I think can really help um, guide not just human trafficking aftercare, um, but any kind of trauma aftercare. I anticipate that it would be really useful, for example, for um, people who have been incarcerated and now returning back to mainstream society. Um, you know, And this uh, theology that I've developed um, really kind of, I think, provides a roadmap to a really holistic and healthy life and a roadmap to healing. That's incredible. Can I ask what drew you to trauma studies? Um, well, um, back in the day, I had gotten into um, kind of the human trafficking uh, whole movement when that was kind of the movement of the day. 
And um, then when I, I wrote a proposal to Fuller to do doctoral work on it and uh, got in there and I had uh, co-founded a small nonprofit uh, that did trafficking education and stuff like that. So I've done work in India. I've studied, um, you know, sex workers at the brothels in, in Mumbai in India, you know, um, studied there um, and in northeastern India in the region of Assam, which is detached from mainline India, looked at um, some trafficking issues there. So I was really interested in it and wanted to uh, realize that not many people were actually studying it in the academy and certainly not at a doctoral level. So um, I thought I would study it that way. And then the whole project just kind of took on a life of its own. And ultimately, the end result is nothing like what I anticipated doing from the beginning. But I'm really stoked with how it came out. That kind of sounds like your personal story too, right? You oh, ended for sure. up somewhere different than where you started. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I think that's something that um, our listeners and you know us personally can identify with quite a bit. You you build yourself uh, as the former fundy and blogged underneath that title for years, and Correct. then um, as in you were a former fundamentalist that is no longer fundamentalist, right? Correct. That would be the <laughs> hence the name former. <laughs> hence the yeah. name former Fundy. Well, <laughs> Fundy. Sorry. Former yes, Lee Fundy. Fundy. <laughs> former Lee Fundy. That's yeah. right. And now you're in a place that you didn't even dream you would have been when you started seminary. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Life has changed so much in so many different ways. It's uh, unreal. Um, yeah. It's been it's been a wild journey. Um, when I went to seminary back in 2008. I got there a hardcore conservative, came from very conservative background. I was career military and had ran in very conservative circles there. And, you know, it was um, a difficult process. And, um, I, you know, I've written a lot about that over the course of the years um, and just getting in there and settling into seminary and realizing that, man, maybe everything I thought I knew I didn't know. Um, you know, for example, when I had my dissertation defense the other day at Fuller, um, basically you sit before your doctoral committee and you have to make the case why you should walk out of the room a, a doctor. And, <laughs> you know, I told my committee, I said, listen, if, if being at the end of your studies and defending your dissertation means you have all the answers, I said, then I am a very poor candidate for a doctor. I said, however, if being somebody who has learned to ask the hard questions and to wrestle with the questions and to, to not to be okay with not having answers. If that's what it means, um, then I think that there's a case for why I should walk out of the room a doctor. Um, and, you know, and I, I summarized it with the great American philosopher, uh, Don Henley. You know, the more I know, the less I understand. And all the things I thought I had figured out, I'm having to learn again. And that for me really actually summarizes my entire journey in that it's been a journey of realizing that the things I thought I knew might not be right. Um, and then there are little discoveries along the way that I continue to find that invite me to rethink everything. And as, as I find these nuggets, I'm like, wow, well, this one right here invites me to just rethink everything. And so it continues to invite me on a journey. And it's, it's one that I haven't exactly arrived on yet. Some people would call that courage. Would you consider that courageous to be open-minded to oh, change wow. of that perspective? You know, I, that may be a word that accurately describes it. I have a hard time, you know, thinking of myself as courageous. I, for me, I'm really working on being authentic. I just want to be authentic. I, I want to be 
I want to be in whatever way I can. I, I want to be truly me. I want to be fully me. And I want to be the real deal. And when I started processing my thoughts and, you know, I got bored one day and started a blog called Formerly Fundy. And within six weeks, my life had radically changed and, um, you know, just had a had my first book deal six weeks later. And from there, just everything has been a really fast and wild ride. Um, and all along that way, though, I've wanted to make sure that I didn't cave into um, just the demands that there are when you um, write for large audiences and catering to the different whims. I, I want to be that one person who, and maybe not, I don't want to say that one person's come, I'm sure there's others out there, but I want to be a person who is really and truly authentically them. And the, the person you see online is the person that you see in real life. And um, I work hard to get that right. I certainly have a harder edge in my written um, stuff than I do in real life. Um, but I'm trying to be very open and authentic and very transparent about this journey that I'm on where I don't have it all figured out. And in fact, I go back to old blogs sometimes and read something. I'm like, dude, I do not agree <laughs> with you. Um, you know, where I yes. like really disagree with my own self. And um mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Um, Frank Schaefer's a really good friend of mine. And I was at his house one time and we were sitting in his backyard just talking about that. And he said, you know, Ben, he's like, I get letters from people all the time that will say, hey, you wrote this in, in this book and I wanted to know more what you thought. And he said, sometimes I'll read it and be like, you know what? I don't know what I meant. And in fact, I don't <laughs> even think that anymore, you know? So, uh, but yeah, it's a journey. I'm certainly not where I began, but I don't know if I could really describe where I'm even at now, if that makes any sense. I mean, calling your 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 blog and starting that formally fundy. Obviously, you were at a certain point in your journey away from fundamentalism. Yeah. So leading up to leading up to putting yourself out there like that with a blog that's pretty explicit as far as this is the direction mm-hmm. I'm headed. Yeah. Uh, what were what were some of the like the formative experience that brought you from fundamentalism to that point sure. to decide to kind of get some new ideas out there? And what kind of fundamentalism did you did you come from? Because there's like, sure. a few different types that a lot of us are familiar with. Definitely. Yeah, true. Um, So I grew up in, I'll answer that one first and then I'll I'll go on to the formative experiences because I think they're both great questions. Um, I grew up in a, you know, fundamentalist Baptist church in a small farm town community. Um, But truth be told, and I try to put this out there and I'm mentioning it, I'm writing a new book now that's due to Harper One in September, um, that my early years, man, I loved my church. I still think they're some of the nicest people I ever knew. And in fact, it may be truer that they were more conservative than fundamentalist. Fundamentalist. Um, but in my teenage years, I got wrapped up with an organization called Word of Life Bible Institute out of Scroon Lake, New York. And um, those guys were definitely fundamentalists. And I, I did two mission trips overseas with them in high school and uh, which really were kind of um, – I don't know. They were almost like uh, where they were kind of coaching you to come do your first year out of school at their Bible school in in upstate New York. And so that's where I went right out of high school in 1994. Um, And um, that's where it really got my head mixed up. Um, And, um, you know, I knew something wasn't right, but I I couldn't put my finger on it. But once it's almost like once your brain gets hardwired to think in these hard black and white binary options, um, even when you know something isn't right, you still end up um, thinking in that way. 
So, I mean, over the course of time, as far as formative experiences, I mean, when I started Formally Fundy, I wasn't sure what I was. I just knew what I wasn't anymore. Um, you know, like uh, we were talking about um, before the show, you know, my interview with Rob Bell last week, where Rob and I were talking about how there, at some points, you don't know what you believe, but you're keenly aware of what you don't believe anymore. Um, and so I reached the point where I was keenly aware of some of the things I didn't believe anymore. And uh, some of those experiences, really, they were born out of seminary, and that seminary was just a very humbling experience for me. Um, part of it was learning the Greek language and um, even you know, learning to translate scripture and realizing that, you know, for example, there are certain words that, for example, you may have, um, you may be able to take the Greek word and you might have 17 different options of how to translate that one word into English. And any of those 17 choices really could carry some theological nuance to it. And so that's when I realized, wow, even, you know, when we read the English Bible, translators are making some very specific decisions um, that are very imprecise as it goes from one language to the next, because Greek is a very precise language that it doesn't always have a one-for-one -one counterpart in English. Um, and I just realized that, man, this is... You, I would be hard-pressed to just read the English Bible and to build hardcore theology that had no room for error um, just based on some of these English translations, just from knowing what goes into the Greek. Uh, and so that was one of it. But part of it was certainly realizing that, um, you know, dispensationalism, the part of fundamentalism I came from was hardcore hyper-dispensationalism. We were waiting for the rapture, the tribulation, the implants that were due to come any day now, which before implants, <laughs> they were actually the barcodes. Yep. Um, you know, it keeps changing over time. Um, but realize that, you know, hey, the, the, you know, I think it was really realizing that there are a lot of things I believe that were not shared by the vast majority of Christians on a global basis. Um, and uh, so it was things like that. But I would say the biggest formative um, experience or realization over the course of time that helped me realize what I wasn't anymore was that I, I just wasn't feeling the love. I just was not feeling the love. I was feeling, um, I was feeling angry. I was feeling like my old view um, was really good news for a small handful of people, and really, really bad news for just about everybody else in all of human history. Um, it just. I had a hard time reconciling being a decent, loving human being with also maintaining that worldview, which required me to judge and condemn almost everybody else in the entire world, except for the people that were just like me. And so that's when I realized that something was really wrong with the entire paradigm. Um, <clears throat> And it certainly didn't jive with the Jesus I see in the New Testament. So that's where I started to realize, man, it's time to rethink things. No, I have I've got a question about about your journey. I, I appreciate you talking about the ideological and even the feelings. Like you weren't feeling love, you were feeling um, more, you know, hopelessness or negativity. If I can kind mm, of sum yeah. up what you said, um, I I would like to hear a bit more about the. Um, maybe what I would call the emer the emotional journey. I I've talked mm. to so many people who come from fundamentalist or conservative backgrounds who, and it's interesting that you've done so much work in trauma. And I'd like to ask you about it, if you've seen any overlap, because I've talked to so many people and I don't know if there's a lot of work been done on this yet, but people coming out yeah. of those communities because there's so much control, <clears throat> there's so many control mm -hmm. mechanisms for emotional control, mental, uh, ideological control. If, um, you know, people who experience trauma like symptoms and yeah, uh, oh, don't sure. know what to do with that. So I wondered if you had that experience or if you've re run across that in your research. 
It's uh, certainly an area of research that needs to be done. I would love to see a study that really explores the psychological aftermath of people who leave fundamentalism. And that could potentially be some, you know, postdoctoral work that I do, because I would really love to do a study on that and begin to measure some of it. Um, certainly, I think that there is um, a post-traumatic church syndrome, which is the name of a book my friend Reba Riley wrote that I encourage folks to uh, pick up and check out. It's, it's a really great book. Um, and certainly, I kind of see what I have experiences post-traumatic church syndrome in so many ways. Um, I mean, the emotion you ask about the emotional part of my journey, it has been so painful that I almost have a hard time putting words to it. And some days it's hard to even revisit. Um, you know, I wrote about this in a post I did the other day, you know, called some things I'd do differently if I could do seminary over again. And I, I talked about how I wish that I had built a stronger support base um, in that I have just lost so much. Um, you know, the church that originally sponsored me and sent me to seminary, you know, they wouldn't touch me with a 10 foot pole. And, um, you know, when I came back to my home state of Maine from seminary a few years ago, um, and I think this was really the most painful one was we got involved with a local church plant with some people that we knew were ideologically different than us, but I was okay with the difference. And I just, I guess I assumed that they were okay with me. Um, and we were doing this church plant and for a long time, things were going great. I mean, we had a small group that met every week and was really a part of, it was a part of my week. I just really looked forward to, I could not wait until Thursday nights to share a meal and just to sit on the couch and to catch up with everybody and to see how people were doing. And then um, I did not know that kind of secretly behind the scenes that folks were growing uncomfortable with me. And, and this is before I had come out publicly, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, I had told them that I thought about starting a blog. But honestly, when I thought I was uh, about starting a blog, I thought I'd be blogging for maybe 10 people. Um, I did not I did not know what would, <laughs> what would happen to my life. Um, mm -hmm. It's it kind of one of those things where it's one of the rarest of stories where, you know, almost literally exploded within the first 36 hours. And that really started creating some problems at my church. Um, and some relationships started to get grow distant from me. And I could tell that people were growing distant. And um, I, you know, literally had, um, there was a, a meeting where we were voting in elders uh, and the teaching elder. And a lot of people had wanted me to be the head teacher. Uh, and um, I realized when they asked me to leave the room so they could deliberate that there was some issues. And uh, when I came back into the room, um, it was a really difficult moment because this is a small group of people. This is literally like facing your own small group, people that are your close friends. Um, and I thought we were just doing a formality when, or here when we we're nominating and voting for elders and uh, walked in and sat down. And, and one of them said, you know, Ben, there, there's a problem with your nomination. And I'm like, really? <laughs> OK, there were a couple questions we need to ask you. And I, I knew that my blog would come up. I expected that. You, you, you know, you can't be provocative and expect there not to be some issue with that. Um, so I was ready to answer those questions. And um, I had had a heads up while I was waiting outside that something was wrong because one of my friends in the meeting who was loyal to me excused himself to the bathroom and sent me a text. He said, you know, there's a major problem. Uh, and he named names with who the major problems were with. And he said, when you come back in, you know, try to, you know, be as humble as possible. And I think things will be okay. 
And uh, so I came back in and he said, so the first question is, he said, it's with your blog. And so I wasn't surprised. He said, would you be willing to put a disclaimer on there that um, your views don't represent this church? I was like, hey, no problem. That is incredibly reasonable. Um, and I think that's a great thing to do. And in fact, uh, I told him I've actually already done that if you look at my bio page. Um, and then he said, well, he's like, the second the second allegation is far more serious. I said, okay, you know, what's the deal? And he says, are you really the head of your household? I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, wow. No, for yeah. those communities, that's a very serious question, right? I know. Yeah. Yeah, and, but um, I just I physically cringe like that brings uh-huh. up, like, memories. Yeah, dude, I, I was. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to spit nails. You know, mm. I, I was I was just so pissed off I couldn't stand it. It would be one thing like if, if this was an interview with a church that you didn't know me and I came and I candidated for, but these were my friends. And I'm thinking, like, what the bloody hell are you people talking about? We're all in the same small group together, you know, and. Um, and so I was, um, I was really upset and things didn't go well. And, um, I went home and, uh, you know, some people called me afterwards and they were like, we're sorry that that happened. We can't believe that happened. Um, that should never have happened. And, uh, you know, that made me feel better, but clearly there was some real division in the church. And eventually that division all came to a head one day when literally we were sitting in chairs, um, around in a circle and one woman stood up and said, he said that Christians should be for a higher minimum wage, and then she stormed out of the front church. Jeez, <laughs> oh, you're not you're not even joking. My no, I'm not even. Of joking. all the things uh, to get mad about, I, mean. I know uh, Frank. Yeah, so Frank Schaefer and I, we were on an episode of Huffington Post Live talking about pro life hypocrisy, and on the show, I said, "Hey, if you're really pro life, you ought to be for a higher minimum wage because we're mm. talking quality of life here and people yeah. to be able to live and this and that." Um, and man, she was pissed. And she actually she sat in her car like you could see her white knuckling it in the church outside of her car. People were like, come back inside. Just come talk. And so finally she drove off. And I'm like, man, <laughs> this wow. is some weird if that's what you're mad at me for. Um, you know, and then, you know, and then another person turned to me and he said, how can you say there's no rapture? And I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, you know, I'm a theologian. We talk about these things. And um it's just things just went really, really bad. And after that day, like so many people, and it was a small church, but enough of a percentage of the church left that there was just no way for us to keep going. Um, you know, they took the money with them. They took everything. And um, so we were just screwed. So long story short, like um, by by publicly being a person who processes my faith journey out loud and very, very publicly. Um, and I, I do that because I think that there are thousands and thousands of people out there in the same journey as me. And I want to be that one person um, who has the courage to do it you know, authentically and transparently so people can know they're not alone. I think the most common fan mail I get is, hey, I just found your blog and I no longer feel alone. It's literally like one version of the same email I get hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and so, but that became such an issue for my closest friends that um, we ended up losing our entire circle of friends. Um, so that's a really long answer to your question, but my emotional journey has been a very, very painful one. Um, and even now, I still wrestle with the dichotomy of being somebody with um, hundreds of thousands of readers every month who is ex- you know, extremely isolated in his real world life. Um, so people see me online and they, they see this online persona 
um, who shows up in your newsfeed all the time. But my real life is very, very isolated. And so there, there are very, you know, two different versions of who I am. And that's a very um, painful thing for me to toggle between um, because my day-to-day life is actually very isolated and filled with a lot of loss and pain. I'm so sorry to hear that. And I, 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 yeah, I think sucks. I speak for all of us that we all resonate with that. You know, you're not mm-hmm. alone, even in feeling thanks, isolated. Thanks. You know, it's, it's strange to be a, a, like we've gotten a tiny taste of being a public figure like that, but the ways that mm-hmm. people change the way they relate to you and, um, all of it, just all of it. Yeah. Is, and it's got to be really strange to be dropped. It sounds like you were really dropped by your home community, like in, in a wide way. Oh, and yeah. then really quickly embraced by the liberal media and the public and the liberal media. I mean, I didn't mean like the liberal media. <laughs> <laughs> the liberal media has embraced you. You'll never get away. I mean, like, like you know, lib, lib, you just Christians ended my career. <laughs> That would that would be that would be like bizarro world to go through that. You said it happened in six weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, it happened really fast. I mean, my my third blog post had a hundred thousand readers, and that was like the third blog I'd ever written. And six weeks later, I had my uh, two book deal that I signed um, just six weeks after I started blogging. And so it just it happened really fast. And it's had it, but it has come up come at a huge price. Um, I mean, even you know after all of our friends dropped us and we were totally isolated, um, what we did was we actually plugged in with the refugee community because we were like, man, we're refugees. And so we went, we actually spent a year and a half with Congolese refugees uh, meeting in the basement of a local church, um, worshiping in French and Lingala. Um, and we were totally received by the refugee community. And it, in so many ways, it was so healing. You know, they, they would tell me, you know, you're the whitest Congolese guy I've ever met in my life. And, you know, there's, you know, you're one of us now and just totally received by them. And, um, and even that, you know, came back to haunt me um, because of my old circle and being a public figure in that we were just meeting wow. um, in the basement of a local church. It was a church I didn't know. I'd never met the pastor and um, after a, lo- a period of time, the uh, Congolese pastor needed to move on to a new job, and he had asked me to temporarily take over the church uh, before, so I could transition it to indigenous leadership. But we needed to really develop some leadership before that could happen. And uh, he was like, you know, he's like, I need to introduce you to Dave. And Dave was the pastor of the church that owned the building. And uh, I'd never met Dave before, didn't know Dave from Adam. And um, so we agreed to meet for breakfast. And um Sat down with him at a Denny's and poured my coffee and uh, complimented him on his shirt. I said, geez, you know, I like that shirt. And he uh, put some cream in his coffee and he looked over at me and he said, I know who you are. He said, I need you to tell me. <laughs> he said, I need you to tell me everything you think about homosexuals. And uh, these are literally like the first words out of his mouth. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, man, this is not going to go well. And uh, so, that, I mean, that was his first question, and that's where we got stuck. And basically, he said, you know, it would be a real shame to have to kick out the refugees out of our church because of you. And wow. um, And so I was My like, goodness. oh, man. So um, we were. I told the Congolese pastor, I'm like, I, I can't do this. And so he turned down his other job offer to keep the church. But still, about three weeks later, we got an, evic- an eviction notice. And um, I was I was so guilt-stricken because— you know, being um, the one Westerner 
working, I was basically like a missionary in residence with these refugees, with these uh, Congolese and Rwandan um, and Angolan refugees. And the last thing I wanted to do was to cause harm. Um, I had been very careful about not holding too high of a position, not imparting any kind of Western values, not even disagreeing with them in areas where I disagreed. I just wanted to come alongside them and support them. And now here I ended up getting them freaking kicked out of their building. And um, it was it was just so hard for me. And that was when I realized that this is in, in small town Maine, especially being a public figure recognized by the media and all that jazz. It's going to be hard for me to find a local community where there's not a target on my back, um, you know, by conservatives, you know. And, and I had later found out that it was another local pastor who found out that I was working with the refugees who called that pastor and said, hey, you, you have no idea who's in your own basement. You need to check this guy out. Um, and so it's in a way it's in my local community. I'm not just abandoned by my friends. I'm hunted by them. Um, and so that makes the isolation even harder. Um, uh, but it makes me even more determined to fight, um, and to fight hard because I realize that I am just a representative of thousands of people across the country who are all being screwed over in the same way by the religious right. And, um, and, you know, I don't want to be a total jerk about it, but there is a fight to be had. There are some churches that need to be wrestled out of the hands of some people. Um, there's people who need to be encouraged that to know that the path of love is not the wrong path, even if they come down hard on you for it. And so um, all the loss and isolation I've experienced has just made me all the more determined that, you know what, I am going to fight this fight and I am going to be a voice for these people um, and I, I'm going to help them rally to a new cause and I'm going to be unapologetic about doing it. Nice. So is that is that 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 feeling, that desire to, to kind of speak out a little bit more, is that part of what motivated you to start the podcast and how did you get connected with um matthew as far as sure i'm I'm assuming based on listening to the show from um from time to time that everything you're describing now seems to be very well represented in uh in your show yeah definitely um so what happened with the show is i had never really thought about it i you know I had kind of hit a certain point with my blog where things were kind of in, in a steady stride. And um, it was about the time my book Undiluted was coming out. Um, and Matthew Paul Turner and I, I had followed his blog for a long time. I didn't really know him. I mean, we were friends on Facebook and um, we had kind of briefly interacted, you know, just commenting on each other's status once in a while, but didn't really know each other. And uh, then we realized that we both had books coming out on the same day. Um, his book, Our American God, was coming out on the same day as Undiluted. Um, and so I actually reached out to him and asked him if he would endorse my book, if I could send him a copy. And um, he asked if, you know, we could have a phone call and uh, to actually talk. And so um, we got to chatting and um, basically throughout the conversation, we said, you know, um, listen, at, you know, when at this level, people become competitors um, and everybody is fighting to be, you know, who can, you know, get the biggest market, um, who can get the most readers, who can get the biggest book deals. Because, you know, even though you're being true and authentic, once you start doing this to feed your family, like you have to treat it like a business. And so there's almost like a necessary evil component about it. And I wouldn't even call it necessary evil. It's just you have to be smart. You have to treat this like a business. Um and so we both recognized that um, that people like us would be inclined to compete for the same uh, same readers and, and same folks. And so we said, you know, um, we would both like to see more community among writers um, and among those who kind of do what we do. And so we said, you know, hey, what would it look like if we developed a very 
public friendship and partnership. And um, what could that look like? What kind of example could that set for others? Um, what could it look like if we almost combined audiences and um, tried to speak to both of our audiences at the same time? Um, and uh, through that conversation, we we're like, what if we did a podcast together? Um, and so through that conversation, just the idea for that God show was born. Um, and so that's where it all started. And, you know, even though it's it's been, um, uh, I guess, a year and a half, uh, it'll be two years in August, we're still really figuring it out. Matthew and I have very similar personalities in that um, we're both thinkers, thought leaders, both very abstract, um, but we both suck at details. So um, that God show has been uh, notorious for being inconsistent. And it's something that both Matthew and I have felt really bad about um, because it's not for a lack of love for the show. It's just we get so caught up into our projects and this and that. Um, so um, actually next Sunday, Matthew and I are getting ready to head to the Dominican um, for a week uh, and on a work trip. And we are hoping uh, we were talking last night about really spending um, uh, some downtime during the Dominican, uh, really planning and, and figuring out what we have to do to take uh, the show to the next level. And uh, I, I realized we need to bring in some people who have different personalities than us uh, to do some admin stuff and help give us some structure, because um, I, I think it's time to, to delegate those tasks that we're not so strong on. But um, but it's been a lot of fun. We've been able to have um, some fun friends on, like Rob Bell and, uh, and some others, and just uh, to really talk about some things that Matthew, Paul, of course, has a very similar journey um, to me as well. So I think um, he resonates and um, he has become uh, one of my best friends in real life. Um, and I hope you would say the same about me. So uh, it's just been a great thing all around. What do you hope to see in <laughs> liberal conservative dialogue? Do you, do you see your podcast as a site for that or more for like the the remnant of people who are making their exodus from, you know, um, conservative yeah. worlds? Do, do you do you have conservative people in dialogue well, with the show or that's something we've wrestled with here? Sure. Um, I think probably for the podcast, it's more probably the most loyal fans. So it's, uh, you know, probably the folks that are exiting out and just really dig your stuff. Um, I do try to do a lot of dialogue through my blog and other things like that. I've, mm -hmm. of course, um, tried to do a lot of dialogue um, with atheists, and I have a very considerable atheist fan base, which has been really fun. I get... Um, some really fun atheist fan mail all the time. And that's always really encouraging to see. Um, and certainly I have tried to build some bridges with conservatives, but I've really done a poor job at it. And part of that is because I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a person who's trying to do something, but I'm also a real human being in process. And so those two don't always line up. And so I can say I have a vision. I want to be a bridge builder. Um, I, I want to take people here. I want to lead the thought in this area. But at the same time, I may be having a really hard week and wrestling with something and that bleeds out in your writing. And I've given my permission, myself permission to just let myself bleed out when I need to. Um, and so it's one of those things where I'm not I know where I want to go, but I'm not always sure where I end up or where I'm going next. That actually leads me to uh, my next question. I wanted to talk a little bit about on your blog, you recently did two series of posts. One was on hell and one was on the atonement where you kind of thought out loud or you invited guests on to talk about certain yeah. aspects and really delved in deeply. And uh, we've talked a little bit about that on our show, but I'm really interested in mm -hmm. the kind of reception that you've gotten for those two topics, hell and atonement, sure. because they seem 
pretty important to a lot of people. Yeah, they do. Um, my health series has been one that's been ongoing probably for over a year now. Um, some of it has ended up in Time Magazine. And uh, it's my favorite series. And I still have more aspects that I want to keep going with it. Um, and so it's been fun. I've been able to bring in um, Jeff Cook, who's a philosopher and a friend of mine who has some really fantastic thoughts. Um, my reception on the Hell series has been phenomenal. Um, in fact, I, I still continue to get mail and to see tweets where people um, are telling me that, you know, that they crossed into my position, which is a, a theological position we call conditional immortality um, or, you know, evangelical conditionalism, um, that uh, I, I'm really, really surprised at the number of people who have actually crossed out of a traditional belief in hell because of that series. I've been um, super, super excited by that reception. Now, at the same time, I've gotten a boatload of hate mail uh, you know be from it people telling me that i'm i'm leading people to hell that i am you know whitewashing things that i you know don't believe in right and wrong that i don't believe in a god that is just um and so all kinds of things i think um for people who are willing to think and wrestle i think that they will be pleasantly surprised with my position on hell um, because my very first post that I ever wrote in that series was called letting go of hell without letting go of the Bible. Um, and what I'm trying to see people is that you can get to this alternative view without just simply saying, I disagree with that part of the Bible, um, which I'm still somebody who, you know, I affirm the inspiration of scripture. Um, so I, I don't just dump part of it, but I, you can actually get to my position using the Bible. And in fact, I think that my position is the dominant theme of Scripture. Um, and so people who are willing to go back and to look at what the Bible actually says and to set aside the lens that you were taught to see things through, um, those people are quite often like, wow, I can't believe I didn't see this before. Because it's obvious things like hell is never mentioned in the Old Testament. I said, you know, one of my posts is like, why didn't God mention it before the New Testament? Um, and, you know, you get I get into the linguistics of the different words that are used for hell and how our modern term of the word for hell came about 400 years later. That, um, and, when, and when you dig into those things and to look at uh, what the Bible actually says, I'm convinced that, um, that you walk away with a different position. So I'm thrilled with the reception on hell. The reception on the atonement was a bit more mixed, but I would actually say it's the same crowd on both sides. It's the same people that, that dug it were the, um, and the same people that hated it. Um, there are just some people that cannot get past the idea of a God that's going to burn and torture people forever. And they cannot get past that that God did this, you know, tortured and killed his own son. Um, and for some reason, it's almost like these people are almost impenetrable. Um, it's just really difficult to dialogue with. But again, it's that same group of people that if they're willing to set aside and to consider, hey, maybe what I was taught isn't the right way. And what if I just go back and look at what the Bible says and, and give it a fair hearing, which is all I'm asking people to do. Um, those kind of people, I think, walk away with a very different outcome. Uh, you know, like I showed in the atonement series where it shows that God didn't even like the entire sacrificial system. It didn't, you know, Hebrew says it didn't work and God didn't like it. So, you know, that, you know, that kind of dispels that. And then, you know, talked about Jesus used the word ransom and ransoms aren't paid to the, the parents of the kidnapped. They're paid to the one who mm -hmm. did, did the kidnapping. And so, I really think on both of those issues that if people would just give the Bible a fair hearing and take off the glasses that you were given in your church growing up as a kid, I can help you get somewhere else into a much better place. Hmm. 
And because you've been in that space before, maybe you can comment on this. Do you think that this inability to, to set aside the lens for a moment mm-hmm. comes from the fact that everything is built on that one idea? Like at all of the faith, all of the interpretation of the Bible, their picture of, you know, our picture of God and of yeah. ourselves is built on that one piece. And if you pull that up, that apart, you pull everything apart, like sure. you know, our identities well, and stuff. I don't necessarily think it's because those pieces are so essential. You know, for example, if they would give me a fair hearing, I would show them how belief in in traditional hell is not one of those essential elements, or how um, you know uh, the the blood atonement is not one of those things. But what I do think it is is I think it is just this general idea that we grow up with that our faith is fickle and that the Bible is fickle and that if one part is wrong, it's everything is wrong. So I think that really they would do this with almost any issue. I don't think it's it's necessarily because it's with hell or with that. I mean, for example, if you look at like Ken Ham and Ken Ham arguing this young earth creationism, and so Ken will literally argue that our faith is, is a house of cards. He will say that either the earth is like 7,000 years old or the Bible is not trustworthy. And so, so many of us have grown up with these false binary options of everything that we were taught to believe has to be true or all of it is called into question. And so I think when you go after anything that is kind of a core belief Um, whether it's hell, whether it's atonement or anything like that, I think it feels so frightening. Um, and like the entire house of cards is going to collapse, but honestly, they do these things with smaller issues too, and they become equally belligerent. Um, and I just think it's this general false belief that somehow our faith is, you know, it's, we don't want to admit it, but uh, you know, for those people, their faith is exactly what the atheists say. You know, the atheists, you know, will say, geez, you know, if I can disprove this, I can show you how it's all crap. And um, a lot of the fundamentalists, without even knowing it, actually believe that. But I'm somebody that my faith isn't fickle. My faith isn't at a house of cards. I have arrived at a, if I've arrived anywhere, I've arrived at a very Christocentric, Jesus-centered faith. And that's something for me that's unshakable because I just keep going back to that. So I am, I'm, I'm one of those people. I want to ask big questions. I want to explore possible answers. Um, and I'm okay with not arriving at any of the answers. I don't think my house is, faith is a house of cards. And I think so many people would be far more enlightened and find a better faith if they would realize that their faith is not as weak and fickle as they are functionally acting like. I've never heard it explained like this, but that makes so much sense to me. And as you're talking, I'm thinking a lot about identity. One of the most surprising things, I mean, I was kind of, I feel like raised in, in, in overt and covert ways to really fear liberal progressive land. Like that, you know, all those godless Mm. heathens out there, they're just running, Mm -hmm. running amok, doing whatever they want. They have no morals or values and they certainly don't love Jesus. But one of the most surprising things (laughs) that I found with my exodus is that people on the outside of those communities, um, conservative communities don't base their identity in doctrine and belief like fundamentalist communities do. And so I think that it's, the lot of the fear in my experiences come, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, not from even the House of Cards faith crumbling. It's from your identity and your relationship to the community that holds that identity being jeopardized. Would you say that's well, 
Yeah, exactly. I have an entire chapter in my book, Undiluted, about this issue of identity and how Jesus invites us into a new one. Um, but I believe you're right. We we get so much of our identity, uh, you know, from all these different things. I mean, you do get identity from doctrine. You get identity from the tradition that holds that doctrine. You know, I'm I'm Reformed. I'm Anabaptist. And, you know, and, and admittedly, like for me, like being Anabaptist is a big part of my identity. Um, but I think one of the problems is is we develop these identities, which um, in some ways are are normal and good. For example, if you look at social movement theory, which is something I talked a lot about in my doctoral work, one of the sen- one of the se- essential elements of a social movement is something called a collective identity. You can't have a movement without it. And so, on one hand, you know, like Christianity has a collective identity, but then since the Protestant Reformation, we have forty thousand other collective identities. Um, And so those identities aren't necessarily bad, but here's where it gets into trouble. It's when we start drawing life from that. And this is the tricky thing. And this is where, um, you know, I draw heavily from the work of Dr. Greg Boyd, um, uh, who is one of the theologians I really look up to. And he talks a lot about this as well, that that when we are drawing life from something, that, that object becomes an idol for us. And it defines so much about our life. And so I think people, they take these collections of identities in in their subcultures or their their theological tradition or their local communities and that identity becomes so strong that it actually overrides like a Christ-centered identity and it begins to give us life um, to such a degree that once you have that identity and those identities always have boundaries um you know, there, there are um, different things within that collective identity that, that make you in or out. And so then you have a need to police the borders. Um, this is something I talk about in my book, Christian Outsiders, which hasn't uh, been published yet. But I talk about this whole need of um, once you draw these lines, you have to have people willing to police the borders all the time. Um, and so to me, it just invites you into this whole mess. And um, I think really what you're getting at is, yes, they're getting their identity, um, but their place in the identity isn't necessarily bad or wrong. But what is better wrong is the value that they're placing in it. Um, And that value becomes so high, it becomes the thing you fight for um, instead of fighting for something better. And and that that uh, policing the borders happens on both sides of the border. Oh, yeah. Because you you just recently had a conversation um, well, on on your podcast about how even in progressive Christian circles, fundamentalism or at least the traits of fundamentalism Mm -hmm pop their heads up, you know, oh, here and there. I've called and them out people... frequently and I've, you know, <laughs> I've coined the term, you know, the progressive Twitter police. Um, and they annoy the crap out of me every bit as much as the conservative fundamentalists, you know. In fact, sometimes more because with my fundamentalist friends, you know, they'll like, you know, call or send an email telling me to repent and why I'm wrong. The progressive Twitter police, they just want to publicly shame you. That's this whole, this mm. new thing is this public shaming. Um, and I just have... I don't know. Honestly, it disgusts me. And I know I pissed off a lot of progressives when I did that and I got flack from it. And um, you can like put this on the record. I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's it's obnoxious like i have i just i don't have time for it i just don't have time for it it's not life-giving i don't think that's mm. what following jesus is about yes i want to be a guy who fights for ideas yes i'm gonna take on people who i think have toxic and dangerous ideas but i think that there's a, a good way to do it a helpful way to do it and then i just think that there's a nasty way to do it and i don't have time for nasty people on either side Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, <for sure>. Preach. <laughs> 
I, I had emailed you because I personally was processing through the question of pacifism and mm. coming from fundamentalism in the past. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember, yeah. My, my commitment to pacifism sometimes looks like a fundamentalist ideal, you know, some ideal that exists out there that I have to uh, ascribe to. And in some of the conversations I've had that, like, thinking about interviewing with you and speaking with you, that's my one question because mm. you have a commitment to pacifism yeah. following Jesus. Can that ever be something that is like a trait of fundamentalism or is related to it? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. And um, I've actually thought a lot about it since uh, I saw the question in in the pre-show notes. Um, Yes, it it really can. Um, And this is where I personally wrestle in that, okay, you know, what does it mean to be a fundamentalist? Um, Does you know, just having some non-negotiables or, or things that you think aren't up for debate when it when it or about what it means to follow Jesus does that make you fundamentalist? Um, the I mean, these are hard questions because I confess that my theological opinion is that nonviolent enemy love is a requirement of following Jesus. Um, from everything I've I've looked at and gone through, I don't see any loopholes. I think it's a requirement as, as much as any other requirement that, that we have faith in Jesus, that we follow, that we be like him, that we love our enemies. So I do theologically hold a hard and fast position on that, not unlike fundamentalism. And um, that invites me into a lot of tension. And um, so what that has done is it has encouraged me to ask questions about how I hold my theology. Do I hold it with an iron fist or do I hold it with a a degree of humility? Um, And as I reflected back, I realized that on this one, I have a hard time doing that and I need to find a way to do it better. Um, I think fundamentalism uh, a lot of times is maybe more about attitude than it is about anything else. Because even like if you look at American fundamentalism, I affirm a lot of the core beliefs they believe in. I believe in the virgin birth. You know, I believe in the miracles of Jesus. Those are like, you know, all part of the five fundamentals of faith. Um, So I think, you know, the fundamentalism um, that I have left and that I reject is more of the ideological pure, that no one else is welcome, that we will banish you if you are different. Um, And certainly the attitude that comes along with it, being a total jerk about it. Um, And... And again, I, I realized that I actually do have the ability to be a total jerk about pacifism. Um, and <laughs> so I, I'm really going to have to wrestle with that. So I don't have a hard answer mm-hmm. in that, but I'll be transparent in that I'm really wrestling with that. Because on one hand, I, I have a firm theological conviction on it. I don't think it's one of those issues that is a gray area that everybody can just make up their own mind on. I think Jesus was really clear on it. Um, but at the same time, how do I hold that position in a way that is loving, inviting, understanding, encouraging? I, I'm going to have to really work on that. And um, that will certainly be a takeaway I'm going to take uh, w- take back with me from this interview is that um, I personally want to wrestle on how I can hold my position in a more loving way. Awesome. <laughs> right on. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Sounds good. Well, Ben, thank you so much for all that. I feel like we could go for, you know, another couple of hours, but we want to honor your time, of course. And uh, is there anything that we can we can plug for you? Where can people find you and your work? Sure. Well, uh, people can follow me on Facebook slash Benjamin L. Corey. 
you know it's me. You'll see a little blue check mark there beside my name. And uh, then they can follow me on Twitter at Benjamin Corey. And of course, the blog can be found at uh, formerlyfundy.com. Uh, my book that's out now, available wherever books are sold, is called Undiluted Rediscovering the Radical Message of Jesus. And um, hopefully next year we'll have another one out. I'm currently writing a book for Harper One, um, tentatively called American Heresy. But I don't know if that's the final name we'll end up with, but that's what I'm calling it right now has a nice ring to it <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure and we will have all those links that uh, benjamin l Corey just talked about in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 60 that's irenacast.com slash 60 and anything else not related to this conversation you can always contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback on the other side of the music uh benjamin is going to be joining us for a round of jesus or jay-z All right, so we're bringing back Jesus or Jay-Z. I'm pretty sure this is our fourth edition. So for those of you, if you're just tuning in, uh, basically how this game works is each of us have come up with a couple song lyrics, and it is the the job of the other co-hosts and guests to guess whether it's coming from a Christian artist or whether it's coming from a secular artist. So this Whether it's uh, a worship song or a Christian song or not. Exactly. Exactly. And if you've spent any time in, you know, an evangelical circle, you you start to realize that it's easy to make dirty jokes from some of the worship songs. So we're kind of playing off that (laughs) idea. And uh, I hope somebody picked that song that says something about a sloppy wet. We did that one in the past. Yeah, Jeff did pick that one before. (laughs) Very well done. You've already earned like 12 points. So. That's you're ahead of the crowd. <laughs> I have such a hard time singing that one in church. I'm like, wait a minute, when did they pick this? <laughs> I love sloppy wet kisses, so I'll sing that Ew. all day, every day. <laughs> so does it, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> all right, who wants to who wants to start? I only have one, so I'll go last. Oh, Alan, I know you I tried really hard. Me. Alan, we gave you so much time. With <laughs> we always pick on Alan. That's kind of our thing. Jeff, Jeff, it, it is. Yeah, I'm the the punching bag of the group. It always no. helps to have one. And you're the pacifist Jeff. that seems like so unjust. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, why don't you give us one of yours? Because all right, I will. Excited. I will start. Okay, so here it is. Let's get dirty. Let's get used. Let's get foolish. Let's get free. Free to be the one thing we were meant to be. Get dirty. Oh boy, <laughs> I I'm pretty sure that's a Christian song, but I can't remember who. I, I swear I've heard this before somewhere. I'm betting that it's Christian music, and it's a great indictment on the state of contemporary Christian. Music. <laughs> uh, I'll go with Christian too because of the free part. Although, if this was written in like the 70s, maybe that would be you know non-Christian. But because of that, I'm going to go Christian. <laughs> Well, everyone is absolutely correct. It is a Christian song. It is called Dirty, and it's by uh, a classic Christian band, Audio Adrenaline. <laughs> really? Nice. Yeah. Okay. I want to get dirty. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's get dirty. <laughs> Mona, you, right, you got one? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Um, I look a lot like Narcissus, a deep, a dark abyss of an emptiness standing on the edge of a drowning blue. I look behind my ears for the green, even my sweat smells clean. Glare off the white hurts my eyes. Gotta get out of bed and get a hammer and a nail. 
learn how to use my hands, not just my head. I think myself into jail. That sounds wow. self-loathing wow. loathing enough to be a Christian <laughs> song. So I'm going to say it's a Christian song. I'll say non-Christian. I'm, it's a little weird for me, so I'm going with non-Christian. <laughs> weird as in how? What kind of weird? Uh, it's like it's just mm-hmm. different. There was a, maybe like a darkness to it that I don't know. Um, I still think non-Christian. Yeah, and references yeah. to like popular culture, so it's probably non-Christian. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. It's the Indigo Girls, so you guys are right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's too poetic, right, for Christian pop music. Mm, yeah. <laughs> when I heard Nars, I think that's what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. References to Greek uh, well. mythology. They would never do that. <laughs> well, I can. <laughs> they could have been referencing a few Christian leaders, though. With that one narcissism. Hey, right. I'm with you there. Uh, <laughs> that's the second most written thing I ever wrote was about narcissism and pastoral work. Ah. Okay. Just out of personal experience. Not we'll that I'm a narcissist or anything. <laughs> no, not at all. You just throw in your work there. That's, you know, right. So Wait, that that's right. No, isn't that, that's the test for being a narcissist. If you say, are you, if, if you say, if the question is, are you a narcissist? And you say, yes, you probably are. Like they're yeah. self-aware enough to know, which really freaked me out. Right. Cause you would think <laughs> that they'd the be un- not yeah. in touch with themselves. <laughs> uh, weird. Okay. Ben, do you, do you have a lyric? I have a lyric. It says, uh, I'll go wherever you go, so run away with my heart, run away with my hope, run away with my love. I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like someone would be mad at the theology of like Jesus up in heaven, but like still running away somehow. <laughs> I don't know if that could work. Um, I'm going to go with non Christian. For that Me reason, too, then. because Stay I think I've, I've heard it recently on the radio. Uh, you probably did. <laughs> <laughs> it's wherever you will go by the calling. Very nice. So that's <laughs> so that's non-Christian, right? I'm so ill-informed Correct. about the calling. Music. Yeah. <laughs> the calling. Yeah, you know what? I think I thought that that was. So I did hear it on the radio, and I thought it was a Christian song when I first heard it. That's funny. I know. It actually, I know, like it could be like the disciples serenading Jesus, you know, in the garden. I'll go wherever. You <laughs> yeah, there it is. Like, like, no, Peter, you can't go where I am. Going. <laughs> but show us the way, Lord. You know, like you could turn it into a musical. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, mine's gonna look like really banal compared to all of yours, but here it goes. And it's a great day to be alive. I know the sun is still shining when I close my eyes. Sometimes, and this is a different part of the song. That's like the main part. Here's one of the verses. Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes it's only me. And the shadows that fill this room. Sometimes I'm falling, desperately calling. Hmm. Is sun spelled S-O-N? <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky. Yes. No, it is spelled S-U-N. I'm, that sounds familiar. I think it's a non-Christian. I think I've recently heard something like that. Although you I'm can't gonna go tell. With Christian. I'm going to go with I know Christian. the sun's still shining when I close my eyes. I'm going to go with non-Christian. This one's a coin flip. <laughs> it's actually a country music song from uh, when I was a little kid. It's, called, it's a Great Day to Be Alive by Travis Tritt. By virtue of being country, good. it's definitely nominally Christian, but not explicit. <laughs> <laughs> Could, could, could get along. Yeah. There you go. 
Who's next, Jeff? All right, here's my here's my second one. You bring me to my knees. You make me testify. You can make a sinner change his ways. Open your gates because I don't want because I can't wait to see the light. And right there is where I want to stay. Oh, the gates got me. I'm going to go with Christian on that one. Either way, this is uncomfortable for me. Sinner, sinner got me. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a euphemism for other things. Yeah, like I I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's just my mind, but you know. I, I sing worship songs as an as a male adolescent, and so every time I heard certain lines, it was just very difficult to think, you know, in very worshipful ways at moments. As a teenager? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. You were tempted. So I still hear that sometimes. I'm going to go with non-Christian. I like being contrarian, so I'll go Christian. Yeah, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going Christian because of the word sinner. <laughs> Interesting. It is non-Christian. Ah. It is Bruno Mars, and he's okay. not talking about regular gates. He's talking about <laughs> opening someone's legs. It's that's what I thought. Ah! <laughs> hey now. Yeah, no. The whole song is full of very religious imagery. I thought that would be very nice. Yeah. Now, next time I hear the word the words pearly gates, I'm going to think about not, <laughs> <laughs> not Saint Peter. <laughs> um, oh my God. Okay, right, Mona, you're up. I got a next one. Yeah. All right. She was 17 when she came on the scene. I sat her I saw her down the hall and thought I was in a dream. She said she was from the islands, which this bro- had this brother smiling. Little did I know that I'd be on this mic testifying. I like sunsets, she likes sunrise. I'm always running late and she's always on time. I like you two and she likes cold play, but something tells me we're going to be okay cuz she was made for me. You gave her you gave er to me. I said I'd hold on loosely, but I so want to squeeze you just right for me. And for the life of me, I can't believe I get to call her mine. There's no way that's a Christian song. <laughs> I, no I'm ashamed to know that I know the song. Oh How do you God. know this song, Jeff? Listen, we don't need to know why I know this song. <laughs> wow. Because you sang it to your wife. That's why. Ooh. I absolutely did not do that. <laughs> Didn't you guys meet when you were seventeen? Though it would kind of work. No, we were we were eighteen. Okay, I, all right. I, I thought you were like going to start reading the lyrics from you know, like uh, I saw her standing there. We were <laughs> seventeen. <laughs> Me too. That's what I thought it was. But it turned into this amazing queen. like rap rock thing that you got going on. <laughs> Love it. She's into. Wait, is she into you too, or am I into you too? That's the difference. I like you too, but she likes Coldplay. I'm going to say Christian because they like you too. And Coldplay. They're like uh, the the Christian secular <laughs> bands, right? The bridge bands. They didn't mention Creed. I guess Creed's too old, huh? Uh, <laughs> I know what it is. So I'll. Okay. Did everyone say afraid. what I'll they thought Christian. it was? Well, what, what about you, Ben? What does your spidey uh, sense tell you? I think that's a non Christian one. Okay. It, it is Toby Mac, you guys. Yeah. Wow. It's a Christian, Christian song. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. <laughs> Which is strange because like Toby Mac's been making music for like a long time. I'm pretty sure yeah. he's in about his forties. So singing about a seventeen year old girl is just not appropriate. Maybe he was seventeen so, when he sang that. Maybe. Uh, well, it came out like two years ago, so <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. All right. Well <laughs> Ben, do you have, do you have one more? I, I guess I'm the last man standing. Yes, you are. Okay. Just gonna stand there and watch me burn, but that's all right because I like the way it hurts. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, that's Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say 
it's a it's a worship song about hell. That's right. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually quoted Eminem one time when I was <laughs> officiating a funeral. But I said, well, according to contemporary philosopher Marshall Mathers, and no one <laughs> I was quoting Eminem. It was the best. Uh, let's see. Wow. Okay, the actual lyrics are: I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. I've seen this probably a thousand times in my I life. I want to touch yeah. you. <laughs> that one's burned into my so, memory. Hey, I oh, just it? said it makes me uncomfortable. That was the song I was thinking of when I said that earlier. <laughs> That's so funny. So th- I mean, not to sidetrack this segment, but this whole thing reminds me of the episode of South Park 3 plus 1. Have you guys ever seen yes. that? Yes. Oh my gosh! Where they oh they just they want to be a Christian band. They just take these love songs and reword it to be about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Awesome. The priest, the priest is hearing him sing. He's like, "Wow, it sounds like you really love Jesus." <laughs> That's a great episode. Uh, oh, I can't believe I just admitted that I watched South Park. But whatever. You did. <laughs> Social commentary. It's re- it's research. Go. Cultural research. There you go. <laughs> So yes, you guys already know this one, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. all do. Yeah, sorry. I thought this was a good choice because I don't know the song. I was just looking up lyrics. Oh, okay, <laughs> really? I, so wow, I'm like, that's, huh, a, that's a weird choice. song. <laughs> this is like a we sing this like every week. I feel like. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah I did. Oh, growing wow. up. Youth group. Yep. No I want to know I, you more. I have no mm-hmm. idea what song this is. No way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But you did. You picked a, a, a highly awkward, mm-hmm. highly did. awkward. I'm going to call it a heavily awkward song. Just oh, there the, you go. To make it more awkward. <laughs> right, well, uh, thank you, Ben, so much uh, for joining us this week. Um, for those of you listening, if you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. And if you've already done that, go to irenacast.com slash support for even more ways to show love to the show. And um, yeah, so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. And I am Benjamin Elgory. Thanks for joining the conversation. That was such a good radio voice. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. That is the custom in these parts. I'm happy to. (laughs) That is the custom in these parts. That's right.